0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. This is a text that really affected me as I was initially looking at preterism and trying to figure out, is this thing true, is this thing not true? This was a text that really, I think, affected me along that way. Now, this text also, I think, demonstrates the value of understanding the Tanakh. We talked about that in past messages, how important it is to know the Tanakh if you're going to understand the New Testament. Now, almost all commentators agree... I don't agree, but most all commentators agree that this is the hardest passage in the book of Galatians. And Paul's form of argument here is very Jewish, even rabbinical, which means that his first century readers probably had no problem at all following him. But that same style can be rather difficult to 21st century readers. From my perspective, I think this passage is quite simple if you understand the Preterist view of eschatology. The key to the whole passage can be found in verse 21, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is arguing here with those who want to go back to Judaism and take Yeshua with him, with them, the people in Galatia. He's addressing people who want a hybrid religion that is part Jewish and part Christian. They intend to believe in Yeshua, plus they want to live under the law as a means of pleasing God And winning his favor. Everything in this passage is aimed at these confused believers who were sorely tempted to go back to the law of Moses. His point is Have you considered the implications of what you're about to do? The folks in Galatia had been toying with the law for far too long. The false teachers had been very persuasive, their arguments had been convincing. They said, We, the Jews, we're the chosen people of God. We are are of our father Abraham. The sign of the covenant people is the sign of circumcision. If you Gentiles really want to be part of the people of God, you need to do something. You need to submit yourself to circumcision. You need to keep the law. The people in Galatia wanted to do what was right. They wanted to be right with God, so they were moving toward the law. So Paul challenged his readers who claimed to value the law so highly, to consider what it actually taught. And he chose his lesson from Genesis, a book in the law section of the Tanakh, and thus he uses the term law to refer both to the law itself and to the Tanakh. He's referring to both of them. He says, do you not listen to the law? Paul senses that he hasn't made his point with them yet. So he's going to approach the matter now with an illustration from the Tanakh. Essentially, Paul says, Let's have a Bible study, Galatians. Get out your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. And he says, For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, Paul doesn't mention the fact that he had six other children from the woman named Keturah, who he married after Sarah had died. That's Genesis 25, 1 and 2. He focuses on these two because the birth of these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, provided Paul with the sermon material that he needed to teach the biblical lesson that was needed by these folks at Galatia. Now, the history behind this story is found in the book of Genesis, and it basically goes like this. Abraham was a prosperous businessman in Ur the Chaldees, When God called him and told him to take his wife Sarah, leave that land, and go to a land that God would later show him. Why did God choose Abraham? There's a lot of people there. Why did he pick him out? Well, in a message that I did on 6-17-07, I said, did God choose him because he was a godly man? And I said, no. Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper when God called him. Where did I get that from? I got that from the calf path. Okay, most of you know what I'm talking about when I say the calf path. You know, we just follow tradition. We hear something, we repeat it. Okay, well, maybe I got it from Joshua 24.2. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, And they served other gods. So Terah, Abraham's father, served other gods. Now, it doesn't state here that Abraham himself was an idolater, though his father and his brother were. So many people just take that and they say, well, his father was an idolater, his brother was, so was he. But here's something that's very important. Jewish tradition asserts that Abraham, while in Ur of the Chaldees, was persecuted for his abhorrence of idolatry and hence was called away by God from his native land. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about who Abraham was when he called him, but the book of Jubilees, which is a highly regarded Jewish text, a pseudepigraphal work, sometimes called the Lesser Genesis, that was written in around the 2nd century B.C., It records an account of the biblical history of the world from the creation to Moses, and it says this about Abraham. It says, Abraham as a child began to understand the errors of the earth, and at the age of 14, in order not to be entangled in idolatry, practiced in connection with astrology by the whole house of Nahor, separated from his father and family, and prayed to God to save him from the errors of the children of men. Now, that's the book of Jubilees. The book of Jasser says this, Jasser 9, 6. And Abraham was in Noah's house 39 years. All right? Here's what we have to understand. Noah and Abraham were contemporaries. Okay? Abraham's life actually overlapped Noah's by 58 years. Fifty-eight years is a lot of time to communicate with somebody and learn some things, right? Fifty-eight years, thirty-nine years, and Abram knew the Lord from three years old. And he went in the ways of the Lord until the day of his death. Now, that's interesting. He knows the Lord from three years old. These are Jewish texts. Now, the book of Jasser, again, is a non-canonical book. It's mentioned in the Hebrew Bible several times. Now, you may be thinking, because I know I've heard this from people, why do we care about these ancient Near Eastern texts or these intertestamental Jewish material? Why can't we just stick to the Bible? And that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? We don't need that. We need to stick to these. Well, here's what you need to understand. These ancient Near Eastern texts, which most people have never even heard of, they give us really important background information That enriches the meaning of the biblical text so we can understand better what the authors are trying to communicate to us. These pseudepigraphal books are the cognitive environment of the writers and the original readers of the Bible. That's important because the worldview of the biblical writers and their original audience is the context of Scripture. Scripture. We talk a lot about the importance of context. We're usually talking about the context of a chapter or a book, but the context of the Bible is where it came from, and its writers, this material was something they read, they were familiar with. This is the cognitive environment of the writers of the New Testament. So if you want to helpful, be helpful in understanding some of the Scriptures, this gives us good insight into it. So I think it's important that we are familiar with these books, we know what they say. This is the worldview that the Bible came out of. So the idea that Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper, I think, is probably wrong. The pseudepigrapha texts paint him as a God-fearer. So God called Abraham, and He promised to give him descendants that would become a great nation. Genesis 12:1 and 2. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, To a land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, if Abraham is a pagan moon worshiper and Yahweh comes and says this to him, what does Abraham say? Who are you? Who are you? What? I got to go where? I'm not going anywhere. I don't even know who you are. So, you know, uh, let me ask you this. This is chapter 12. What happened in chapter 11? No,pe that's chapter 10. Oh, yeah, I guess chapter 10 is the table of nations. Chapter 11, Tower of Babel, right? In the Tower of Babel, we come to a point where Yahweh says, I am tired of you people, humans. You don't listen. You don't do anything I tell you. So he literally disperses the nations and hands them over to other gods, lesser gods. You you don't want to listen to me? Go. Let these gods rule over you. And he starts all over again in chapter 12 with Abraham. Calling a new people. They're going to be my people. You lesser gods rule all these people. I'm going to have Israel. They're going to be my people. And what we see in this text is, is great. It's encouraging, except for the fact that when this happened, Abraham's 75 years old. Yeah, I'm going to make your name great and you're going to be a blessing. You're going to, you know, you're just going to be great. Well, 70, I'm 75, Sarah's 65. Sarah's your age. <laughs> and they had no children. <laughs> oh <boy>. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. That's why I call her Sarah. No, actually I keep calling her Sarah hoping she'll respond, "Yes, Lord." <laughs> Hasn't worked yet. Hasn't worked yet. <laughs> now, in the course, in the course of time, they arrived in Cana, the land that God promised them. And in Cana, God repeated the promise to them, saying, "I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted." Well, ten years had passed, and still no son had been born. And since the biological clock was ticking. Sarah suggested that Abraham marry Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. Okay? And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, Men, it's always good to listen to your wife, okay? But (laughs) I said listen. (laughs) But this is a time when he should not have listened to his wife, okay? Maybe he was just afraid. i got to do what she tells me. But this was not a good thing. Abraham shouldn't have listened to her here. He should have took a stand. So Hagar becomes pregnant, and a son named Ishmael was born. Sarah concluded that since she's 75 years old, there was no way she's ever going to have a baby. That's perfectly reasonable, right? That makes sense. Uh, that's a human conclusion. So she and Abraham decided to take matters into their own hands and help God out. But listen, people, God doesn't need our help. And whenever we try to help him out, things get bad, okay? Things get, we get in trouble. And that's exactly what happened. In Genesis 16 says that animosity arose between Sarah and Hagar. You understand that, right? you got two women sharing one man. That's never going to work out right, okay? That's, gonna, that's never going to be good. So young Ishmael grows up in an unhappy home situation. Fourteen years pass. Abraham is now 99. Sarah is 89. His body is as good as dead. Her womb is shut up tight. There seems to be no chance, none whatsoever, that they're ever going to have a child together. But at precisely that point, God appeared to him once more. And he says this in Genesis 17, 15 through 17. And God said to Abraham, As Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed he's like are you kidding me come on god and he said to himself shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old shall sarah who is 90 years old bear a child now to make it clear that ishmael was not the son of promise god said to abram 1721, i will establish my covenant with isaac now who's isaac he's not even born yet whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So what happens? God revived the bodies of Abraham and Sarah, and 12 months later, Isaac is born. She's 90 years old. He's 100. I don't think I'd want to be having kids at 100, but this is a little different, okay? The name Isaac means laughter. So Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah's 90, Uh, Genesis 21, 6 says, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, that much of the biblical story is probably familiar to most of us. It's clear why Paul uses this example. The Jews revered Abraham as their spiritual father as far as they were concerned. If you were a physical descendant of Abraham, then you were in good standing with Yahweh. As long as you could find your father Abraham somewhere in your family tree, you didn't really need anything else. You were good. It was a matter of lineage, of heritage, of tracing your family tree. And if you could find Abraham back there somewhere, then you're good to go. But Paul is saying, not so. God's family is made up of those who have a relationship with Him by faith in Yeshua. Paul is teaching it's a matter of faith. Your family tree doesn't matter. Now, as Paul puts it, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Isaac was born as a result of God's promise. Ishmael is born a slave because his mother was a slave. Isaac is born free because his mother was a free woman. Paul says that Ishmael was born according to the flesh. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now, the NIV says was born in the ordinary way suggesting in the ordinary way is just people normally have kids. You know, according to the flesh, they're conceived, they're carried to term, and they're born. But I think that Paul means more than that here. I see according to the flesh as meaning human efforts apart from God. Specifically, he was born according to the lack of faith on Abraham and Sarah's part as they tried to accomplish God's will in their own way. So I think this flesh is a little bit stronger thing there. If, if we look at Paul's prior use of flesh in Galatians, we see him using flesh to refer to something that is totally human with no special grace attached. It's Paul's use of the term flesh in Galatians. He does not simply mean possessed of a physical body. Rather, he means limited only to a physical body, physical strength, and only what it contains. So, However, now, the other son, Isaac, was not born in the ordinary way or according to the flesh, in the sense that in contrast, he was born according to a promise. The son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this doesn't mean that Isaac wasn't born in the ordinary way. Because he was. She conceived, she carried a term, and he was born. What makes his birth different is that God intervened in the situation where Sarah couldn't conceive and miraculously allowed her to conceive. This is a work of God. She's 90 years old. She never had a child. At 90, she has her child. Now, the problem in Galatia was this. The Judaizers taught that you either had to be a Jew or you had to act like a Jew to be saved. That meant being circumcised, keeping the outward trappings of the law of Moses. But Paul taught that one could be physically uncircumcised and keep the law. Do you get that? Okay, look at Romans 2, 26 and 27. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Let me ask you something, people. How can someone who is physically uncircumcised keep the law? You can't. The law commands circumcision. So what's he saying? What is he trying to tell us here? Listen, this is really important. The Gentile Christians, the Gentile Christian who is physically uncircumcised keeps the requirement of the law by faith in Christ. Which shows that he has been circumcised in heart. The phrase, the precepts of the law here, is the same Greek phrase used in Romans 8, 4 here. And this is a super important verse here, people. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us as Christians there. The righteous requirement, in other words, whatever the law commanded is fulfilled in us. When you trust Christ, you fulfilled the whole law, every bit of it. So that's how an uncircumcised man can be keeping the law because he's in Christ. And in Christ, it's all fulfilled. All that the law required, including circumcision, is fulfilled in us Christians by the Spirit through our union with Christ. Amen. In verse 26 Paul expounded a radical shift from the covenant of Moses which commanded physical circumcision. But even back, you know, in the Tanakh he said God wanted circumcision of heart. That was what he was after. They just they missed it. So the Judaizers taught that you had to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. That's what the Bible taught. The Judaizers said, "Who's your father?" But Paul says, "I got a question for you. Who's your mother?" Who's your mother? So the Jews knew that they were descendants of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, but Paul turned their most prized bragging right on their heads by saying, no, you're descendants of Hagar. He is saying that those who take matters into their own hands by keeping the law, by thinking they can earn salvation by obedience, they're the children of the slave woman, he says, and not the free woman. Galatians 4, 24 and 25 Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. All right, before we go on, let's talk a little bit about this allegorically here. Many people have used this text to to sanction the allegorical method of interpretation. Are you familiar with the allegorical method of interpretation? The allegorical method seeks a deeper spiritual meaning of a text below what they call the shallow surface of the literal. In other words, it might say this, but there's a deep secret meaning there that's allegorical. The Greek word, Allegoreo, from alas meaning another, and agora meaning to speak, hence the things which are spoken of as to give a different meaning from that which the words express. So he says these women are two covenants. He's not saying they're literally two covenants. Okay, they're not covenants, they're literal women. All right, but he's using an example here. All right. The allegorical method of interpretation views the the literal meaning of a text as elementary and secondary to the spiritual meaning. Okay, And those who are, they teach, those who are immature or uninitiated into the deeper things are able only to grasp the literal meaning. Where the primary problem with the allegorical method is that the spiritual interpretation is highly subjective and awful, often little correspondence to the text that's interpreted. In other words, the text doesn't say anything like that, but but I see this spiritual meaning in there. Well, you, you know what I see in there? Who cares what you see in there? What does the text say? What does the text mean? They read spiritual meaning. Oh, this means that, and that means this over here. It's not, it's not in the text. They're just trying to draw this out. The easiest way to sort out, this is to start where Paul starts. He starts with two women and two sons, all of them literal people who actually lived on the earth, and whose stories are told in the book of Genesis. What happens next is that Paul looks back at these historical persons, and he draws certain conclusions from them. Paul says, these women are two covenants. Now, again, you know these women are not covenants. They're women, okay? Paul reveals that these two women in the Genesis account, actually they represent, or he's going to use them to represent the two covenants of God. So Hagar and Sarah represent old And new covenants. You see that? Everybody with me so far? That's pretty plain, I guess, right? The writer of Hebrews talks about these two covenants in chapter 8. Hebrews 8, 7 and 8. For if the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second new covenant, right? We don't need a new one if the old one's good. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant. Now, get what he's saying here. He finds fault with them when he says a new covenant. Why? Well, because if the old was good, he wouldn't. They, they wouldn't need a new one. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant. Now, in fact, the old covenant itself said that there would be a new covenant. The very fact that we have Jeremiah 31 demonstrates to us that the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. There's going to be a new one. All right? Back to our text. So we got two covenants, and then one of them is about slavery. You you can connect that right away, right? Mount Sinai. What's Mount Sinai? That's where the law is given, okay? This is Hagar. Present Jerusalem. Now, do we need to go into audience relevance here about present Jerusalem? Is he talking about Jerusalem today? Present to who? The writers, the readers of his book that he's writing to. Present Jerusalem, the one right over there right now. That's bondage. That's slavery. So Paul sees a huge difference between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah represents grace. Hagar represents law. Sarah stands for trusting God alone. Hagar stands for trying to please God through our efforts. And the sons born to them represent the way of faith, Isaac, versus the way of works, Ishmael. Thus you have real people who nevertheless stand for or point to or represent certain spiritual truths. Paul said this was an allegory. That's how we know it is, okay? But we can't make up other allegories. When you boil it down, Paul is saying that Sarah is the line of faith, Hagar is the line of works, and all humanity is either in one line or the other. There's no third line. It's either works or faith those who follow hagar are the people who believe that religion that good works that self-effort will be enough to gain forgiveness salvation and eternal life people you got to understand this is a huge crowd today all right just ask somebody if you were to die right now and stand before god in heaven and he asks you why should i let you into my kingdom what would you tell him it's very telling because most people are going to say, well, I went to church every Sunday. I gave, I tied, I, I did this. I, and they start to their accomplishment. And, and you know, eh. no, that's the wrong answer. Unless the answer is because I trusted his son, the Lord, Yeshua, the Christ and what he's done for me. Any other answer is wrong. OK, but most people are in that works camp and they just believe if you just do this or that, you'll be OK. OK. There's country songs about that. There's all kinds of things pointing that direction. It's just about your works. So, those who follow Sarah are people who have rejected self effort and they've chosen to believe what God said, even if it seems to fly in the face of what everyone else says and does. Of these two covenants, Paul says, one is from Mount Sinai. We know where that is it's a slavery, it's Arabia, it's Hagar, it's Jerusalem. All right. Now, the reference to Mount Sinai points back to the giving of the law to Moses. The present Jerusalem, again, is the Jerusalem of the first century, which was the world headquarters of Judaism with its dependence on the law as a means of salvation. But since no one can be saved by keeping the law, the people who live in Jerusalem are enslaved by the law. They're trapped by the demands they can never meet. The slave woman, Hagar, produces a slave son, Ishmael, who stands for everyone who is enslaved by the tyranny of law-keeping as a means of salvation. salvation. Slavery comes from slavery, bondage from bondage. Now, Paul's argument is the most startling reversal in the entire history of prophecy. Hagar, the Egyptian bondmaid, is identified With Jerusalem and Jewry. Sarah is identified with the true church, the new covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, the allegory thus declares that earthly Israel, the 12 tribes, is to be regarded as Ishmael because they're in bondage to the law, they're not free. Whereas the church of Jew and Gentile, in which all distinctions of race, degree, privilege, are abolished, is the true Israel to whom the promises made to Abraham apply. We got that? Okay, now the Jews, they heard these promises and they say that's ours, that's ours, that's ours, that's ours. You get the Galatians and he said the promise was made to Abraham and who? His seed, which is Christ. So the promise is fulfilled in Christ. And we receive the promise when we trust Christ. Now, this view has derogatorily been called replacement theology. You all familiar with that? You heard replacement theology? And and what they say is, well, the church replaced Israel. But I think a much better term would be fulfillment theology. Okay? The promises of God made to old covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church of Yeshua, which is the true Israel of God. Christianity is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel because we are the true Israel. Hagar and Ishmael stand for present Jerusalem. That is the earthly Jerusalem standing with the temple, the sacrifice at that time that Paul was writing. Sarah and Isaac stand for true Israel, the church, the Jerusalem that is above That's what he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. The covenant made with Abraham is the promise of the gospel. And from that promise, every Jew is excluded unless he comes by the same road of faith which the Gentile believers come by. Paul takes Hagar and he makes her the spiritual equivalent of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, this would have been repugnant to the Jew because all Jews view their descendants of Hagar and Ishmael as being in essentially in the same category as Gentiles who were viewed by the Jews as dogs or vermin. So this is he's, they're not happy with him saying these things to them. Okay, Any Jew would have been offended by suggesting that he was a son of Hagar. Yet that is exactly what Paul tells them here. Physically, they were descended from Sarah, but spiritually, he's saying, apart from faith in Christ, they're descendants of Hagar. The true sons of Hagar, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. At the time of this writing, Israel was a slave nation. They are under the yoke of Rome. They were not free. Now, they perceived themselves as free. You even remember when they said to Yeshua, we've never been in slavery to anyone. I'm like, well, how dumb are they? They've been in slavery their whole lives, but they didn't see it. They didn't get it. They perceived themselves free to the extent that they, because they were allowed to practice a limited form of Judaism under the law. But they were still subject to the power outside of Israel, to Rome. And so Paul is saying that as much as you might think Jerusalem is free, it's only an illusion. And to think the law can save you is also an illusion. So, by contrast, Sarah stands for the promises of God found in the gospel, which reveals to us the good news that Yeshua died for our sins and he rose from the dead. The salvation he offers is free to anyone who will take it by faith. Thus, salvation offers true and lasting freedom. The free woman produces a free child. Freedom comes from freedom. Now, what exactly is this Jerusalem above? Who is our mother? Well, you've got to keep in mind that the comparison here is between the two covenants, right? That's what he's got contrasting. Earthly Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, represents old covenant. Heavenly Jerusalem represents new covenant, right? I mean, that's pretty clear here. All right, look at Revelation 3.12. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So John tells us that the New Jerusalem is the city of God. Also in Revelation 21, 9, the angel said to John in a vision, then came one to the seven angels. He had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, come. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride, the wife of the lamb? It's the church, right? This angel is showing John the wife of the lamb. Now, with that in mind, look at the next verse. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So come, I'm going to show you the bride. He shows him Jerusalem. Who is the bride? Who is the wife? It's the church. This angel is showing him the wife. In short, Jerusalem from above is the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, which is the new covenant, which is the city of God. The writer of Hebrews points this out when he makes a comparison of Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. Hello. Hebrews 12, 22-24. Now, he's writing to believers here, and he's telling these believers, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festival gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, the word and here after Mount Zion would be better translated as even or that is the city. So he's saying Mount Zion is the city of the living God, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So Mount Zion is the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. It's the church in verse 28. It's the kingdom they all refer to those redeemed in the body of Christ, new covenant believers. That's why this verse in Galatians concludes that Sarah, who represents the covenant that corresponds to the kingdom of God, is the mother of all believers. It ties back to what we read earlier from Genesis in seventeen sixteen, where God said to Sarah, "She shall be a mother of nations. Kings and people will come from her." Sarah. Equals Isaac, who equals the new covenant, which equals Jerusalem above, which equals the church. You see that? They're all connected. So we could say that the new covenant and the new Jerusalem and the church are synonyms. They're all the same thing, people. The Jerusalem above represents the dwelling place of God. Sarah represents that city because she gave birth to Isaac, not by reliance on herself, but by an act of God from above in fulfillment of His promise. Therefore, spiritually speaking, She is the mother of all Christians, a people whose lives are not merely the product of human resource, but of God's supernatural work in their heart. Galatians 4.27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Anybody know what Paul's quoting here from? This is Isaiah 54.1. And he does this to establish the relationship of Sarah to the heavenly Jerusalem. This prophecy assures Israel during her barren time in Babylonian captivity that she will one day have more children than ever before. The Jews took it as a prophecy not only of the restoration of Israel, but also of the time when multitudes of Gentiles would turn to God and claim Israel as their mother by becoming full members of the Jewish nation. But Paul sees the fulfillment of the prophecy in the birth and growth of the church. Paul applies the text from Isaiah to Sarah and Hagar as follows. Sarah at first had no child. But when the promise of Isaac was fulfilled, her posterity exceeded that of Hagar. But in the instance of the spiritual fulfillment of this, the numberless sons of Sarah in the church of the living God are even more overwhelmingly outnumbered those of Hagar. So the question is not, who's your father? The real question is, who's your mother? Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You brothers, those are believers. They are children of promise, not of works. He says this twice. He says in verse 28 and then in 31, We who believe in Yeshua are descendants from Abraham through Isaac. We are not the sons of Ishmael. We have believed God's promise by faith, and on that basis alone, we are God's children. God declares here that every believer is a child of promise, as Isaac was. That's because, like Isaac, we become children of God, not as a result of any action we have taken, but of our faith in Him. And this fact is amplified in John 1, 12, 13. He says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Contrary to doctrine that is widely taught nowadays, that we don't become saved by making some decision. That's called decisional regeneration. You just decide to trust Christ, and that's it. Listen, we receive Christ because God, having named us in His will, has given us faith to trust in Him. He's called us to Himself. Galatians four twenty nine. But just as at that time. He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. According to the Spirit here, this is synonymous with according to promise in the previous verse. It stands opposed to the phrase according to the flesh. And it means that his birth was by a special or miraculous agency of God. Paul says at that time referring to Ishmael's persecution of Isaac Ishmael persecuted Isaac then he says this so also it is now referring to the Jewish persecution of Christians in the first century they persecuted one of them persecuted the other that's going on right now Paul says Paul's greatest enemies were not the pagan philosophers in Athens they were not the Romans Paul's greatest enemy were the fanatical Jews Paul rarely had problems with the Gentiles unless they were first stirred up by the Jews. During Paul's day, there was a bitter struggle between fleshly and spiritual Israel as typified by Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. Much of the New Testament writings were designed to encourage Christians to hold fast under the Jewish persecution because deliverance would come soon at the return of Christ. Hang on during that persecution, he says. Just as Abraham had two sons, which existed side by side in the same household, these two sons are typical of the two Israels of God. People, this this is such an important theological verse to understand. All right, Romans 9, 6. Paul says, it is not as though the word of God failed. What? Why would they think the word of God failed? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a theodicy. You know what a theodicy is? A theodicy is a defense, a vindication of God. Paul had been dealing in Romans for eight chapters about all the church had inherited, all the church had received, and the Jews are going, those were our promises. Wait a minute, weren't those promised to us? Wait, why are they getting that? And so what happened to our promises? Had they failed? Has the Word of God failed to come true? And Paul says, it's not as though the word of God had failed. No, no. You know what the problem was? You misunderstood the promises. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What in the world is he saying there? He's saying there's two Israel's people. There is physical, fleshly, national Israel. They thought those promises were to them. They weren't. They were always to spiritual Israel. So all those who descended, physically born from Israel don't belong to Israel. Not all of them do. They're not not part of the true Israel of God, only unless they come by faith. So there's two Israels, one born of the flesh, Old Covenant, the other born of the Spirit, New Covenant. They existed side by side, these two Israels, for 40 years, the transition period. From Pentecost, when the church was born, they dwelt together. There was great persecution to the church from these Jews because they hated them. All right? And during this time of coexistence, the one born after the flesh just constantly persecuted the one born after the Spirit. Now, notice God's solution to the persecution. He says, why can't you all just get along? Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that at all. He said this. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Get rid of them. Boot them out. What? For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So Paul touches in verse 29 upon the persecuting envy of the Jews against the church. He says, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him as born according to the spirit. And they were persecuting them because the privileges had passed to them. And they were like, hey, what's going on here? Those are our blessings. And he likens this to the hatred of Ishmael against Isaac and concludes his argument by quoting against the Jew, their very own words originally spoken against Hagar and her son Ishmael. He says, cast out the slave woman and her son. This refers to Old Covenant and earthly Israel, physical Jerusalem. Get rid of them. Cast them out. And the dreadful judgment of these words should be unmistakable. God was about to judge Old Covenant Israel for rejecting and crucifying His Son, the Messiah. Killing those He sent to them. Time came for Hagar and her son to go. That time was A.D. 70. God destroyed Jerusalem. The people that weren't destroyed went off into slavery, razzed it to the ground, burned it. No more genealogies after that. No more sacrifices after that. That was the end of it. Okay? They're not sacrificing today. So you take sacrifice out of Judaism, what do you have? I don't know, but it's not Judaism. Okay? It's not. They're not following the Bible. Okay? They had to sacrifice every day. When's the last time a Jew sacrificed? Prior to 8070. Okay? They'd be removed from hindering the church any further. God says, that's it. I'll cast out that bomb. I'm going to take care of it. When the Lord comes and reduces Jerusalem to rubble, the persecution ends because now they're free. They don't have these Jews constantly on them. Christ's parousia. And the parousia means presence or arrival is tied not to an outward physical earthly appearance of some sort, but to the consummated coming and arrival of the new covenant age. And it was physically demonstrated through the destruction of that temple and city. His presence, therefore, is a covenantal presence in terms of a new and everlasting covenant. Adam Clark writes this, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. What does this imply in the present case? Why? That the present Jerusalem and her children shall be cast out of the favor of God and shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman. The free woman shall not inherit the blessing promised to Abraham because they believe not in the promised seed. So the abolition of the old covenant means the abolition of physical Israel from all her privileges. And the emergence of the New Testament church is the rise of the Israel of God. I, Paul Again, Paul teaches in Galatians, and it it's so important. He says very clearly, The promises were made to Abraham and his seed, singular, which is Christ. That's the promises. They all took the promises for them. Oh, those are our promises. No, they were made to Abraham and Christ. And so unless you're in Christ, you don't get any of those promises. Any of them at all. While Ishmael and Isaac coexisted together, neither received the inheritance. And in order for Isaac to receive a full inheritance, it was necessary to cast out Ishmael. Paul is saying that earthly Jerusalem will never share in the promises made to Isaac. They won't. It was not for them. It never was for them. That's why we have Romans 9, 10, 11, a theodicy, explaining God God kept His Word. You just were confused on who, what it was about. They are not the Israel of God, physical Israel. They're children of the bondwoman. He says in 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, it's interesting that this he writes to the most Gentile of all churches, showing that to be a Gentile church has passed has been passed on, the covenant, the glory, the birthright, the privilege, the redemption. They received the promises. The consequence of this text is far-reaching. They extend to every prophecy of the Tanakh in which new covenant is foretold, even though the words of the prophets are addressed to Israel and Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant. Cool. A new covenant. Who's the new covenant for? House of Israel and House of Judah. Hmm. So who's this covenant promised to? Israel, right? House of Israel, House of Judah. Who received the covenant? The church, didn't they? The new covenant. Any believer is going to say, we're in the new covenant. This is the new covenant. The church has the new covenant. Well, what is promised to Israel and Judah? Because we are the Israel of God. The church is the lawful continuation of Old Covenant Israel and the inheritor of the Abrahamic Covenant promises. They're ours, people. They're ours. Let me wrap this up with a simple question. Who's your mother? Hagar or Sarah? (laughs) Are you born of fleshly or are you born of the Spirit? Do you still think that there's some way that you can help God out by the things you do? That you will do something and God will say, man, they're just great people. Let me, let me bring them into my fellowship. If you think you can somehow be good enough to merit salvation, or if you think that salvation is partly what God does and partly what you do, you're a child of Hagar. You're in slavery. You're in bondage. The Ishmaels of this world trust themselves. The Isaacs of the world trust God and God alone for salvation. And like I said, most of the world is trusting themselves. If they believe they're going to be, everybody thinks they're going to heaven, right? You ever heard somebody die and say, well, good, he's in hell, now he deserves that. No. No one says, he's in a better place. Everybody goes to, I mean, it's like a universalism that the whole world believes in. Everybody goes. Why did he get to go? Oh, he was and They start listing the accomplishments. Ishmael's of the world trust in themselves. The Isaac of the world trust God alone for salvation. So who's your mother? Make sure you know the answer to that question. The freedom, slavery, and spirit-flesh antithesis which Paul has constructed in his allegory serves as the framework for his ethical instructions in the whole rest of this letter. So he goes on from here. The children of the free woman who were born by the power of the Spirit must learn to express their freedom by walking in the Spirit. They must not submit to the slavery under the law or gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's what he tells them. Listen, you've got to understand this. This is so important. Identity is the basis of behavior. Okay? That's why God over and over tells us who we are. You're my children. You're sons of God. You're believers. He tells us who we are because identity is the basis of behavior. A clear understanding of who you are in Christ guides our conduct in the Spirit. And that's why someone who doesn't have assurance of salvation is never going to be very victorious in their life because am not really sure if I'm a Christian or not. Why should I live like this? Why should I try? Why should I work at it? No, if you know whose child you are, you got confidence, you got strength to go on. Identity is the basis of behavior. I know who I belong to, and that guides my behavior, because I want to honor my Father. Not trying to earn anything. I don't have to earn anything. It's all been given to me. But I do want to honor my Father, and therefore we live in accordance to what He's called us to live. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this uh, incredible little text here, Lord. It's It is pretty eye-opening. It's pretty amazing. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that only as we trust you and you alone will we share eternity with you. There's no room for the flesh. There's no room to boast. There's no room for someone to earn their way because no flesh will glory in your presence. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you for making us your children, Lord. We love you. Amen. Okay, questions? Comments? Okay, Uh, Junior asks a question. He says, When and how do we differentiate between Biblical Judaism and Talmudic Judaism? Well, that's, that's, I don't know, that's not really an easy question. You know, some people put a whole lot of emphasis on Judaism and on rabbinic tradition, all right? If it's in the Bible, then let's stick with that, okay? In the sense of, you know, people say the Jews believe this. Well, that's like saying Christians believe this. What does that say to you? What? What Christians? Right? You can go across, I mean, there's a church right, you can walk, you can throw a rock and hit it, and they believe totally out from what we believe. They're Christians, we're Christians, they just believe totally different. So you can't, the same way, you can't say, well, the rabbinic taught this, they believed this. No, they had all kinds of different schools, rabbinic schools that believed and taught all kinds of different things. Some taught you couldn't be divorced for any reason, another school taught you can be divorced for any reason. Pick your school, right? So I don't know that it's that easy to determine. I think you just have to you know, try to see what their basis is. Is it the scripture or is it tradition that they're following? Uh, Bob Cruikshank says, good stuff, David. This helps explain Zechariah 14. Early Jerusalem was destroyed. Heavenly Jerusalem was rescued. Absolutely. It was destroyed. Here we are. Okay, Dan Harden says, proves definitely that those like dispensationalists who think Jews still have Old Testament promises to be fulfilled are wrong. And that's true, Lord. You know, there's most of the church is dispensational and most of the church is looking for things to be fulfilled. They're looking for Israel to go back to their land because God promised them the land. Again, they don't understand the promises of the true Israel. They're looking for certain things to happen. And you know, it's, it's sad because... What happens after they get back in the land? Then the tribulation comes and they get wiped out. So, you know, I see these guys on TV give so much money to help get Jews back in Jerusalem. I'm like, why? You want to wipe them all out? What's the point of that, you know? And listen, people, you know, if, if dispensations are right, we're not in any hurry for the Lord to come back because things have to happen first. The temple's got to be destroyed. But you can't destroy it until you build it. And you can't build it because there's a mosque on that property right now. And if you mess with that mosque, you're going to have a holy war for sure over there. And that's got to be settled. And once that holy war is settled, then you can start building the temple. And then once the temple's built, then they can come and destroy it. And then the Lord can return. So I'm not looking for anything future, people. Yes? Just on that comment, does the the temple need to be rebuilt exactly at the same spot? Well, well right. that's the spot where it belonged. That's the—I mean—that spot is holy ground. Okay. okay. But I, I just have interest because I had heard that that mosque isn't directly over the site. But well, anyway, well, they, uh, any, let's say anywhere near there, <laughs> try building the temple, they're going to be in trouble. Right. The other thing is on the on the of, i mean, on this uh, the, the Galatian church. Arguably, it could be that that there are probably more Jews in the Galatian church than Gentiles. Arguably. I don't know. I think it was one of the most predominant Gentile churches that there were. Okay. But I think they had they they had been infiltrated by the Judaizers, you know, who probably they kinda of followed Paul around. No, 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 it's not enough that you just trust Christ. That's important. But you also have to do this, do this, do this and they Okay, so you think they're more after the Gentiles that were converting to Christ rather than yes. have converted to Christ? Yes. I mean, they're going after the Jews also, okay? But you know, but the Jews that already they they're familiar with the law, but they're trying the Gentiles. If you really want to be Jews, see, so you have to do these. You have to get circumcised, and you have to do this. You know, Acts fifteen. You know, that's what they're saying. Can you can you be a Christian if you don't you're not circumcised? You're not keeping the law. And the church settled that. You don't need to do any of that stuff. It's faith, faith in Christ alone. Connie, um, I seem to be missing something. I don't. I, I accept what you're teaching. I think it sounds good and right, and expounds on what I already believe. But I don't see how it supports pre- uh, preterism. Okay, well, I, in my mind, it's, it's this idea that are you be, between within 40 years you got both covenants existing, and God said the solution is cast out the bondwoman. That's the destruction of Jerusalem in 87. That's the end that He put to that. Which gave the Christians freedom then from the persecution they were experiencing. In the New Testament, like I said, almost every book bears that out, the persecution. So that's I mean, that's how I saw it anyway. Okay, might not again, we can give two texts and you're like, ah, I don't see that, you know, at all. And I can say, Well, I see this in it, you know. And but to me, that really helped me. I see things a little different than people so. Gary? Well, I, this is just a point I when you were talking about the bond woman and free woman in Genesis 16, uh, I know you don't believe this, but it seemed like we were saying the Sarah and Abraham got together and were figuring out how to help God out and by getting involved with Hagar. But it, it's almost like it didn't allow for that was God's sovereign will. I mean, that's how he well, wanted it to take place. But it wasn't his moral will. It wasn't yeah. his will of precept. And that's what we're responsible for, okay? God told him, you just wait. Be, wait on me. They didn't do it. They said, well, let's figure out. we got to help God out. Yeah. I mean, he promises a son. He can't do it. Let's help him out. <laughs> how often do we do that, people, in our lives? Mm-hmm. Instead of waiting on God, instead of trusting God, well, let me help him out because he might be a little weak today or something. No. Hmm. You know, he can take care of everything. We don't need. David? We're Jewish Christians expected to still uphold the law until it had passed away? Alright, that's a great question. Were Jewish Christians expected to keep the law? I say yes and no. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> if they lived in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Okay? No, if they lived outside of Jerusalem. Okay, remember Peter went down to Antioch and he was having ham sandwiches with the Gentiles. He was having a good time. He's eating crab legs, ham sandwiches, having a good time. (laughs) Then the brothers from James, who was in Jerusalem, came down and Peter's like, oh, my word. And he separated. And Paul just outright attacked him and said, listen, you hypocrite. What are you doing? Well, the brothers from James were there, from Jerusalem, the mother church. And, and, and I'm afraid because they don't, you know, they were keeping the law. Lo- the, lo- the temple was still standing. The, the priests were still there. The sacrifices were still being made. But outside of Jerusalem, yes, they were they were eating ham sandwiches. They were enjoying life. So they must have repaired the veil, huh? They must have made a new veil. That was Christ. The veil was. Christ was crucified. <coughs> I'm sorry. They must have repaired the veil. Why the veil ripped in the crucifixion. How did they continue the sacrifice of that? You know, there's, there's, there's questions about what veil was that that was ripped. Was it the inner veil? Was it the outer veil? Uh, I think it was the outer veil. I think the purpose of that rendering of that veil was to show you that the holy of holies is empty. Mm. There was nothing in the holy of holies. Mm. Okay. They went through the. Process like they were worshiping God like He had told them on the Day of Atonement. They take the blood and they go in there and they're in an empty room. There's no mercy seat. Okay? Okay, The The ark's gone. And God's showing them, listen, this is empty. This is done. There's nothing here. That's my understanding of it. Well, when was it taken out then? It would have been... uh... Uh, when, when was, was it taken when, when was the uh, the ark of Babylonian like captivity? you yeah, think it was taken yeah, uh, you know you got as many opinions on that as as anything but I, I I have a view that during the Babylonian captivity when the when they were confronted this is kind of elaborate but I think you know the pillars and the stanchions on top of the pillars was basically like a hydraulic system made of sand and I can show you some scriptures to kind of back this up but they took the ark and they hid it underneath but Jeremiah says the ark will never come back or be brought to mind again. It's done. Okay, that's over. Forget it. Forget it. It's done. The people are still looking for it, you know. And you know, it's there's like one in heaven, though. what? Revelation says there's one in heaven. Well, that's it. It's a heavenly. You know, that's the that's the true. The heavenly is the true. You got the type and the anti-type. <laughs> Sorry, I've got something here. Okay, um, Mike. Mike, I thought you were traveling. You must be listening on the road. Mike says Galatians four supports. He's answering your question, (laughs) Connie. Galatians four supports preterism because the New Jerusalem was about to come. All right, that's what we teach. When the New Jerusalem arrives, so does the new covenant. You know, they all—that's a thing. They're synonymous. They all go together. That's right. We don't. We all go together. But so many people like dispensationalists. They believe we're in the new covenant. I don't know. Yeah, but it doesn't Does make, make any current? sense. How it was given to Israel? How, yeah. how do we get it? You know, and that's a lot. That's really a problem for dispensationalism. The, the inheritance of the new covenant when it was promised to Israel and Judah. So, how do we think about the um, persecutions today and in the centuries following? There's always been persecution, pretty much. Church at least does not Right. and in this day and age, it seems primarily focused from uh, Muslims who are definitely from that. Um, hey, God. hey God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and definitely their religion is of works. It's exactly like right. You know, that's You're right. It. So it seems that that sort of prophecy is, is cyclical. Almost like it's happened... It, it continues to happen, in a way. Yeah, well, if you allow that to keep... Happening, if you And I'm not doubting the fact of persecution today. I mean, we hear that every Sunday here, okay? Christians are being persecuted around the world. But the Scripture is talking about what happened in eighty seventy. <laughs> There's nothing to come in the future of that, because then you'd say, well, it's cyclical. When do you know when the real thing really comes to pass? And this... See, the, the reason this is so important, so monumental... It's the changing of the covenants. The old is gone. No more sacrifice. No more priesthood. No more any of that stuff. No, The, blood's in, the blood of bulls and goats are never going to take away sin. The final side. Everything those things did pointed to Christ. Christ came. He fulfilled it. So we're living in the fulfillment now. We don't have to, you know. But yes, Christians are still being persecuted. They'll always be persecuted. You know, when you live... And that's what Paul told Timothy all those who desire to live godly in Christ Yeshua will suffer persecution. All of them. Every age. And listen, if you live godly, you'll get persecuted by those in the church. You will because you ruin the curve. See, I mean, most people in the church are just very casual Christians. They don't don't really care about God. They just hope they're going to heaven. And so there's this low standard, you know, when I first got in the ministry, I was got out because of other pastors. Wow. The corruption that's in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to this big thing up at you know Thomas Road Baptist Church up there. It was a gathering of pastors together. Mm-hmm. And I was excited you know, to be around these other pastors. And we're trying to talk about the Bible. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, what is this? And the one guy said to me, the only time I read my Bible is if I can't sleep at night. Mm-hmm. He wow. said, it puts me right to sleep. And they're telling these. Dirty, foul jokes. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're peers. It's okay. I'm like, not for me. It's not okay. I'm not your peer. You're on a different level. I don't want any parts of this stuff. And I was really sick to my stomach. I thought, I am not. I don't want any parts of this. You know? Because it's just sickening. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's... I don't even know how I ended up there. <laughs> <laughs> God. <Gone>. So, <laughs> in Revelation, the uh-huh. CLC, Bolts, yeah. All of that stuff. Um, it just doesn't look like that's happened yet. That. Well, that, that depends. I'll tell you, if you want to see something that might change your mind, um, read David Chilton's book. Is it the Chilton? Vengeance? The Great Tribulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Read Chilton's book, The Great Tribulation. What Chilton does, he takes Josephus, and he takes the war of the Jews, and he compares it to what happened during the tribulation back then, that will change your mind. You gotta understand, Revelation is a highly apocalyptic book. Okay? There's not something with seven heads and ten or those are all apocalyptic images speaking of certain things. Okay? Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem. The city's wiped out. That's my understanding of it. But I'll tell you what. I'm pretty pretty much convinced that once we finish second, third John, we're going to go into Revelation and we're going to work through the book of Revelation. A couple more years, yeah. So it'll be a few years, but Gary, how do future say we're in the new covenant, but we're still obligated to live under the old? I mean, they they had had this transition period still going on. There's a lot of confusions there because the Lord said. You know, until heaven and earth pass away, mm-hmm. nothing changes from the law. Yeah. Not a jot or tittle. It stays exactly the same until heaven and earth pass. So, if heaven and earth then pass, the law still oh, intact. But we're in the new covenant. We're in the new covenant. Yes, it it can get confusing. That's what I like about President It's simple. Don't worry. Bible says it. That's what it means.